Hello and welcome to Filibustering History, a podcast series where we discuss what historians do with their lives. As always, I am Rob Denning, lead faculty for the history programs at Southern New Hampshire University's College of Online and Continuing Education. Today, calling in from sunny San Francisco, California, is James Fennessy, the Associate Dean of Faculty for History at SNHU. And calling in from the frozen tundra of Wisconsin is Tom Leary, who holds a doctorate in education and works as an educational consultant and learning designer. Today, we are going to talk about Tom's background and his thoughts on this mystical field called learning science. What is your name and what do you do? My name is Tom Leary, and what I do in terms of history and education is kind of a loaded question. Right now, I'm in transition after a physical relocation across the country, but I teach. I'm very active in the classroom. I do a lot of instructional design work or learning design, as as some people call it now. In the past, I've helped to write accreditation reviews for higher ed. I've I've also was a a dean, an assistant dean at Southern New Hampshire University Online. So I really have a mix of skills and background that really gives me a lot of kind of breadth to what I do in education. And Tom, would you like to take a moment and just talk a little bit about your background in history? So your degree, your focus, how it brought you to the various roles that you have today, and even how it led you to your future degree and and what you're currently doing in the field of education. Sure. So, you know, history was one thing that in high school, interestingly enough, I had little, I didn't really care about it much. And this is still one of my problems with, I think, the way that we approach history in a lot of ways in our culture. But um, it seemed to be a lot of just kind of rote memorization and, and not really, uh, it just didn't didn't seem to have importance or, or anything to me. Um, it wasn't until I got to college and I was kind of checking up the boxes of my gen ed courses as I decided what I wanted to major in that I realized... I never wanted to miss my early American history class, my first semester in college. I never wanted to miss it. After that, I realized I should probably take some more, see if it was a good fit. And the next course I took was the introduction to being a history major at uh, University of New Hampshire. I went to school and I had a great professor who I'm actually still friends with. But after that, I was I was really hooked. It was obvious to me after after taking those classes, history was so important and so interesting in many ways that I'm sure we'll, we'll touch on. So that led to me getting my BA, uh, and then I, I soon after decided, you know, with history, if you want to work in the field of history, you have to, most of the time, get an advanced degree. I wanted to teach specifically, so I knew that I would need to have an MA, and so I went on and got my MA, and soon after that, I was I was working and publishing full-time, but I started to teach uh, online. I started to teach online relatively early and it was it was a great experience for me i didn't have you know i wasn't in an area that would have been easy to physically you know drive a couple days a week to teach in the classroom and of course i had full-time work so i I, it would have been a challenge with my schedule but online actually allowed me to bring my passion for history and my love of of what i of how important i think it is to an online classroom and since then I, that was that was really the opening of the door for me my my career has since focused very heavily on, on online education but that was really getting getting that history degree and making the decision to say I really want to teach uh, because this history is so important and like I said I think we actually go about it wrong in many ways in this country but you know history is so important and to, to kind of overcome those challenges that I think are, are out there in, in people's minds, and I still to this day, as as I'm sure, you know, that you both can attest to that you get students coming into a class that say, 
meh, you know, history is not my favorite thing. I don't, I'm not good at memorizing things. And, and history is, is not about memorization. That's always one of the first things I tell them that you do have to remember things. But history is really a wonderful story that reveals human nature and why we do the things we do. And it's, it's just to me, it's just a powerful discipline. I think that's a really good point. It's more about understanding the past and being able to put things together, not just memorization. I had a, an undergrad instructor as well. One of the points that he brought up in the class is that, and this is pre-internet before we just had all of this information at our fingertips, you can always look up specific dates and people, but the overall goal of the course, especially a lot of our survey courses, is to get a broad understanding of the trajectory of history and the larger themes and how to use those details in order to make sense of our past. So I think that's a very good point, that it's just not memorization, and it's something that a lot of our students really struggle with when they first come into a history course, whether it's undergrad or grad, because they think, I love reading about the Civil War, or I love reading about World War II, and I know about this battle, this battle, and this battle, but then when it comes time to actually create an argument and try to pull this together to formulate larger themes and, and an understanding, that's where they kind of struggle. So I think you're you're right on the money with that. Yeah, and this is something that tends to come up in courses on historiography and kind of usually upper-level courses for history, but we try to make the distinction. The collection of raw facts is something that is done by a chronicler, or this is someone that's done, something that's done by a hobbyist or something, but that's not actually history. The accumulation of facts isn't really what we do. What we do is we interpret those facts. We try to come up with a storyline, try to figure out why things happened. Just listing the events and memorizing the events isn't enough. We need to look for the connective tissue, and that's one of the things that we train people to do. But coming from outside of history, that's difficult for a lot of people to understand because that's a lot of people think that, well, no, a historian is just someone that has memorized you know, the dates of the Battle of Gettysburg and all of that. But the reality is that it's a whole lot more than that. It's more about making sense of all that data. If we've got a big list of names, dates, events, places, we have to figure out a way to make sense of it or else it's just information overload. And I've really found that that's the best way to, when I start my classes, when I begin my teaching my courses every term, I always use videos in the classroom. I think that it gives you a much more personalized connection for the students to see your face and hear your voice. And so I always record video, upload it to YouTube and, and post it in the class. And that's the first thing I, I address is, you know, this is not, you get a lot of students that talk about, they love watching the History Channel, so they think they like history. Well, it's fine. First of all, the History Channel has like lots of bonkers shows on now that I didn't really don't have anything to do with history but even before aliens was, right it's yes aliens and truckers and i don't know but uh not history related things anyway fine tv i'm sure but even before when it was all just documentaries i wouldn't necessarily say that documentaries are always history either historical documentary may have an argument that they're kind of trying to to lay bare and, and convince an audience of but it may not. It may just be kind of a straight one-way stream of facts. And, you know, so one-way stream of facts, as we all just discussed, is not really history. And so when, once students know that they're doing something that has meaning and that I'm not just expecting them to come into class and just list out things that have happened and dates and people, then they understand it a little more. Um, it's higher-level thinking, but it's higher-level thinking that appeals to them because it's meaningful and it's it's also relevant to any field, which I think is a good, probably a good segue into, into you know, some of the other, other conversations that we want to have here. But it's a, it's a pretty universal skill to be able to sit down, look at data, draw conclusions from the data, and then actually articulate an argument that's short form, understandable by all, and then be able to prove that by making explicit connections between pieces of your argument and the data that you looked at. That's relevant for any field. 
to be honest. So it's really important to get that kind of that narrative about history being much more than just facts out there. So you're starting to veer off into this learning science category that seems so alien to a lot of people, I suppose. But before we get there, you mentioned that you got a BA in history, you got an MA in history, you worked as a history instructor, you were the dean of the history department at SNHU online for a while. You know, full disclosure, that's where the three of us met <laughs> for a while. You used, you used <laughs> yes. to be our boss. <laughs> so you've gone on to do other things since then. So you're not my boss now, so I can tell you off all I want. But that's that true. is that's where <laughs> we're coming from, and that's kind of the direction your career was going. And then suddenly you decided to go into a different field. You decided to get a doctorate of education degree instead of a doctorate in history. And can you give us a little bit of insight into your thinking behind getting that degree instead of a Ph.D.? And maybe how your skills as a historian that you learned in your previous degrees influenced your study of education? Yeah, absolutely. So looking back now, I realized what a what a divergence it was. And it, it hasn't necessarily felt like that to me because history is so important to me still. And, you know, I still engage the literature when I can, when I have time. And I still teach, very regularly teach history. So that's really my way of kind of staying connected is, is and, and staying on mission, that getting out this narrative about how important history is and why people should be excited about it, even if they're not majoring in it. So at the time, I was assistant dean of history. Yeah, and that's where we all met. And I, I believe one of the last things I did before I left was was hire you to the full-time position, Rob. Appreciate um, that. that. How, yes, you're welcome. You know, and of course, James had, had worked as an adjunct for me and a team lead, and we used to converse regularly. So it was, it was a really fun, you know, it was a good department with a lot of good connections, personal connections and professional connections alike. So, but at the time, the position that I was in was being shifted to have less to do with, with actual curriculum um, and, and history. And one of the things that always got me jazzed about teaching a new history course at a school, if I was hired by a school, and this is changing now, but it used to be that they would say, here's a textbook, figure out your class. And in online, you can't rely on lectures. In a traditional university, they're very much lecture-based, um, which is passive learning. And, you know, you students go and they sit and they listen to a history instructor talk, and some of them are good and some of them are boring. We've all had those. But you can't just stream data to, towards the students. So I had to take a lot of time to sit and think about how I want to structure the curriculum to say, how do, how do I get the students to where I want them to be at the end of this course? with all the the writing they have to do and then the historical knowledge and all that. How do, we, how do we make that happen? That was always a very fun and engaging challenge for me. Um, and, and so I always loved the curriculum piece, structuring the curriculum. And my job as dean was to work with curriculum for, for part, about half the job. And the other half of the job was working with, with faculty, which is obviously how I met both of you. And that was fun. And I, I, you know, like I said, great connections. But, you know, faculty development and working with faculty was just something that was not where I wanted to put the emphasis on my career. And when I started to realize that I had this penchant for, for curriculum and thinking about things like, okay, we have a student that walks into a classroom. How do we make this class a meaningful experience that builds them to success and gets them things they need, um, not only for their degree, but in life? Um, that was really when I realized, you know, I think I want to pursue a little bit more of what uh, it would look like for my career to focus more on instructional design. And that's really what instructional design is. For those of you listening to this who have, haven't heard of it, instructional design is really uh, an instructional designer sits down and says, okay, we have a course. How can I use technology? How can I use different activities? Uh, what type of content can I use? How do I want to ask these questions? They basically are experts on 
how to get students to learn the right way. And that's what we mean when we say learning science, instructional design, learning design. They're all kind of this area of putting together a course in a way that's instructionally sound and that gives students what they need at their level. And so that was why I had left. I had an opportunity that allowed me to work more with that. Um, And then I ended up actually coming back to SNU in a different role as a manager of instructional design quality, where I actually designed a framework that measured the quality uh, of the courses. The framework actually stated what we felt was when we talk about quality in an online course, what does that actually mean? And then from there, you derive various tools for measuring the quality. Um, And so that was my role. And it was tremendously satisfying to be able to help work with a team that that's all we thought about. We all thought about how do we take this class? We know we need a class on, let's say, the Civil War. What is it we actually want students? Because you can learn a million things about the Civil War. There's, there's a lot of ways to go. We need to know what do students in our degree program, what do they need to get out of this class to be successful in their program overall? Um, and what are the things that we want them to know when they, they leave? And how do we actually measure that they know it? Um, and that's a very exciting field for me. And that led me in the course of pursuing a doctorate in education. That was why I pursued a doctorate in education. I realized I had this general interest in in this area of curriculum design and, and administration of that. Um, and that was really what led me to to go that route instead of the PhD route in history. PhD in history is a very deep content focus. You're going to be an expert in the in that area that you write your dissertation. It's a wonderful experience. I know I would enjoy it, but this was seemed to be where I wanted to go with my pre- career. And a doctorate of education is much more practical, where a PhD is really your design, you're creating academic knowledge that will be disseminated within academia. A doctorate of education is a degree that's practical and focused that says the dissertation that I wrote about assessment and learning design um, and faculty experience isn't necessarily only for those in academia, but also for those who just want to figure out how to how do I work with my faculty and get them to understand assessment better? Oh, okay, I can read this dissertation. Um, it's not better or worse. It's just different. And that was where I chose to place my emphasis. When you're sitting at the head of a department, it's really difficult to distance yourself from those conversations, right? You have, you're the one that's overseeing the faculty in these courses. You have this strong background in the subject area, and you really, I'm, I mean, if you're like me, I think, Tom, we've had conversations where you really do have an opinion about the way that courses should go and what you would like to see put into those courses because you have that discipline specific knowledge. So it's really hard to distance yourself from those conversations, like I said. And I think the other point that you make that's really important is that the traditional PhD does, you know, it allows people to continue on with developing their content knowledge with really becoming experts in the field. But what is missing from a lot of PhD programs is, and because most PhDs do go on to teach at the university level, is some type of focus on pedagogy. I know that when I went through my graduate degree program, we gained experience teaching by being graduate assistants, but there were no specific pedagogy courses. And that's a lot of the conversations that I have with faculty, and I'm sure that you had with faculty when you were in this role, was that you know we might be experts in our field. We might know what works for students that have similar backgrounds to us, but that's not really what might work for all students, and especially online, because most of us went through a traditional program. So really being able to look at the learning science and think about the way that courses are organized and how people learn is really important. And I think that it's going into an EDD and looking at these types of these types of things and being able to engage in those conversations is really important, especially for what you bring to the course design process. And you do make a good point about the... Uh... I don't know if it's practicality or maybe just the uh, influence of your particular role, because when you play a role in development of a course, 
you're going to have a huge influence over a whole lot of students to take that course. Us PhDs, like if I ever get around to publishing my dissertation, I imagine maybe four people out there would read it, and one of them would probably be my mom. So no one's right. going to pay attention to what I'm doing, but you're going to have much more influence over uh, a much larger group of people. And, and that's an important that's an important role, and that's a, that's a huge responsibility because you need to make sure that you're able to accommodate all those different learning styles and that you're able to make it a success for the, uh, the largest amount of people. Yeah, PhD is, is a degree that's obviously very important, very pertinent to our society. We need to build, be continuously building academic knowledge. But there is this piece of, you know, if you write a dissertation on, let's say, I don't, what was your dissertation on, Rob? It was on environmental regulations in California during the 1960s and 70s. So very few people are going to want to look look that up <laughs> in general needs unless they're looking at environmental history right. or they're trying to understand public policy in that arena. I mean, it's relevant. There's a fair bit of crossover between history and political science and even other social sciences like sociology. But it's something that is very important to you and is, is important that we understand what you surfaced in that study. But it, again, likely only be used for academics. The idea, especially... Mine and mine's a little bit more meta, I guess you could say, because I have an EDD in higher ed, so my field, you know, even though it's practical, is is also academic. So there's that dance between I'm I'm doing practical things for academics, so it's it's a very it's very strange. But let's a lot of EDDs are not necessarily focused in higher ed. Um, there are plenty of folks who get EDDs and they go out and they work in the public school district as a principal or an assistant principal or a superintendent. Um, those are very practical roles, obviously. There are folks who go out there and in the program that I took my doctorate in was at Northeastern University in Boston. And they also have an organizational leadership track. So sometimes organizations or companies want someone who they know understands education and understands leadership and things like that. So they want somebody to come into their company and lead efforts around training or development. I mean, those are, they're all, there's a very different practical ways. Mine just tends to focus on the academic, which is like I said, a, a bit circular given the kind of the way we distinguish between the two. But yeah, it's it's a really fun and engaging role. I, I find it to be fun and engaging and so applicable that so many places need to think about this. Because as Jimmy was, was discussing, you can go through and get a PhD and then we just assume you have a PhD, you're an expert on on teaching, which I guess you can see where that assumption came from, considering how many hours you spend in a classroom. But it doesn't actually mean that you you can go out and do it right away. So we we make a lot of assumptions about folks with PhDs coming out and being ready to teach when many of them just want to research. And teaching may be a, a very distant second in their priorities. And then you kind of get these classes that maybe aren't put together the best because the person doing it is, is not as focused on teaching as or has doesn't have the experience to be able to do that. So it's one of those things that I think higher ed is, is kind of evolving through in, in, in the shifts that we see right now. But it's interesting to see it play out. That's a good point because the assumption traditionally is that expertise qualifies you to teach. And <laughs> we, know, we know that that's not necessarily the case unless your expertise is in learning science and teaching. <laughs> because, you know, I can go through and write a brilliant PhD on, well, for example, I mean, my, my master's thesis was on um, this student activist group in Northern Ireland and a one-week march that they organized at the end of the 1960s. So you can see how lucrative that would have been to, uh, <laughs> to right. uh, gaining employment and really being able to speak to a lot of different topics. I'm sure but, it was well done, though. 
<laughs> thank you, thank you. But that's exactly it, right? Like I learned how to research, I learned critical approaches to historical knowledge, and I developed all of these skills that that are applicable across the board, even though my topic was very focused. But at the same time, what I didn't learn and what I had to come come to through trial and error, and really not not even through learning science until I fell into this role as the associate dean for history. And then I started to do a lot more research into learning science and it became a larger conversation within the university is that we really don't know when we go through these traditional programs, we're not really studying how people learn. Where what the conversations that I end up having with faculty a lot is that we probably base our approaches on our favorite instructors and what worked for us. You know, oh, that Dr. Leary was an amazing instructor. He really pushed me hard. It was tough love. That really worked for me. Well, did it work for the maybe the third of students in the course that failed that really needed that extra push and and a more supportive approach rather than just being like the tough love. This is what you didn't do. This is what you need to do. Not that you take that approach, Tom. I know that you don't. But um, <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like Sometimes, that's just yeah. if we don't have a deep understanding of the learning science and of, of how to teach, we end up basing our own approach on what worked for us. And while that might have worked for us, and let's be honest, I mean, if we if we go on to be academics and get graduate degrees, chances are pretty good. We were some of the more motivated students, at least within those courses. So we had a deep interest in it. Well, how do we reach those students who are just taking these courses because it's general ed or who really like the topic, but they, they struggle. And when students struggle, sometimes they shut down. So I think being able to integrate those education educational aspects and what works as far as designing a course or faculty approach and teaching approach is really important. So speaking as uh, from experience in a PhD program, yeah, the very first day of the PhD program, I was assigned as a discussion section leader where there was a guy doing a lecture for three days a week for an hour, and he would do all the course content, and then twice a week, I would run what they called a discussion section where we would talk about primary sources and all of that. And I know from experience that once we graduated out of those discussion sections to teaching our own section of the class, the vast majority of us basically took the syllabus and the lectures of the guy that we were working with before, and we just did the exact same thing. And so it's not even necessarily that we're emulating a particularly good instructor. It's just that we happen to be emulating the one whose material we have the greatest access to at one time. And so (laughs) that instructor could be brilliant or that instructor could be a disaster, (laughs) but because very few PhD students or programs provide any kind of discussion of learning science and pedagogy and all of that, we just don't have anything else to work with. And so we end up emulating either the good the good instructor or possibly even the bad instructor just because that's who we talked to or that's who we worked with last. And so my question that's kind of been burning in the back of my mind now is now that you have this experience with learning science and all of that, I mean, we've talked a little bit about what are some of the good tactics or strategies to use in the study of history. What would you like to see overall in the teaching of history that you think would make it more effective? You know, I think for me, uh, when I think about when I sit down to design a course, there's things that are kind of universal, right? Because different courses are going to necessitate different subject matters for different courses. So math versus history versus science, what have you, those are going to necessitate different approaches to design because what you want to do is to say, okay, there's a, a prevalent approach to design that I know is used at SNU uh, online. It's it's the way that many professionals who approach design in this way, in the way we're talking about, use called backward design. And you essentially start with the outcomes and you say, okay, here's what the five things I want students to be able to know, do, 
demonstrate what have you by the end of a course those are outcomes i think if there's any you know students listening to this you always see those on your syllabi and those aren't just there i mean some universities are there just because somebody told them to put them there but it's new they are not there for that purpose they're there because they are literally the guide and the framework to understanding how the class is designed <clears throat> and so by the end of the class if the outcome is to you know articulate connections between primary sources and and arguments about specific events in history then that's something you should do enough to say by the end of the class like yes i know how to do that and so what I think in history, I think the way I found is most successful to approach a design, the design of a history course is to first be very explicit about, especially in the entry level course. So I've taught at various levels. I always like teaching the survey level courses the most. So it's new, it's history 113, 114, but that are kind of history of early America, history of modern America. There's also the world history, uh, early world history, modern world history. Those are, of course, incredible swaths of time to distill down into eight weeks or whatever the, I mean, online it's usually shortened. So um, you have less time to cover this, basically the history of the world. What you need to do is say what are the most important things and, and then let those outcomes, the things you want the students to do, guide you. Um, and that's why I like those general education courses because it forces instructors and faculty members to say, what are the most important things out of this course? You can spend Every week could be another class or two or three classes unto itself. But what are the most important things we want to get out of this week and how do we tie them together holistically? And so I, I think there needs to be a more of an emphasis in history classes on skills, analysis of, of sources. When you're looking at reading at a primary source, what can you get out of it? And there's also other critical questions that go along with that, even before content, actually. And so I have one of my favorite professors we were just talking about. We all kind of borrow the approach of what our favorite professors did and so my professor that influenced me the most still teaches at UNH he's a wonderful man he used to, always used to say when approaching a new historical source you ask two questions what's the context and what's the content and you ask them in that order so first is what's the context who wrote this source when was it written what is the world like around this source that could have an impact on it and then you engage with the source to say, what does that actually say? What is it telling me? And then you can draw those connections between the context and the content. And I think that's a very basic analytical skill that is not necessarily emphasized enough in some of the areas that I've seen. And it's something I always really place a lot of emphasis on. So skills like that, that help critical thinking and analysis, I think are really important for us to emphasize in history classes, as, as well as writing an argument down in an understandable and concise way. It's funny, I always tell students they don't believe it, but writing a short paper is actually harder than writing a long paper because you only have a certain amount of time. So if you tell someone they only have three pages to argue something versus 10, sure, the 10 may be more work, but you can throw a lot more into that. If you only have three pages, you have to make the best argument with the best pieces of evidence, with the best supporting points, and there's much less room for error. So. Um, I think emphasis on things like that, actually having students not just have them throw everything into a paper. I think we've all had students where they think that more is better, and it really isn't because you don't want to include everything just to make the paper longer. A longer paper doesn't mean it's a better paper. It just means there's more in there. So I think having some discernment around how to make an argument and how to pick the best sources and, and make that argument as in concise a manner as possible is, is critical for, for history students today. Yeah, I think that's one of the important developments that people across the liberal arts and humanities really have been trying to focus on, is that we really need to nail down exactly what skills we teach as 
uh, in the humanities or in history or whatever, because there's always been the cliche of, you know, you're getting a degree in history or English or philosophy. What are you going to do with that? Well, the answer to that, of course, is that, well, this is where I learned these specific skills. And I think in previous generations, and even to, to a certain extent still today, we haven't been very good at identifying exactly what those skills are. We kind of think about, well, you know, critical thinking, we're doing something with that. But if we can kind of focus on the idea that there are specific skills that you're learning here, how to, anal how to analyze sources, how to integrate numerous sources together, and I think we're getting better at identifying the specific skills that can be marketable. I mean, you can be successful if you've got these skills. A lot of employers are looking for these skills. It's just that we haven't really done a good job in previous decades listing those skills or identifying those specific skills so that people graduating with these degrees could actually put it on a job application somewhere. Right. And, you know, what you were just talking about reminds me, there are so many ways in which my history degree has helped with my current role as a designer, working as a professional in learning design and curriculum. And it's, it's really that those pieces that we just talked about, analysis, making arguments, recognizing key themes. If, if you're an historian and you have a primary source, a lot of it may not be necessary to what you are writing about your research project. But you will have the ability to kind of distill themes and, and say, okay, here's an important line, here's an important line. So that discernment is important. The ability to look at something and say what's important and what's not is important. And that's key for me as I'm sitting here and designing courses. If we have a course that there's certain outcomes, I'm, able to, I'm better able to look at the outcomes as, quote, unquote, the argument for the course. And then everything else I have supports those, quote, unquote, arguments. So it's very analogous to writing a history paper. It's saying, okay... I have these things, I need to support them. How do I structure and build something that supports these outcomes or these arguments? There's a lot of similarities and it's really just in that higher order thinking. Evaluation, synthesis of different ideas and different uh, areas. I saw an interesting article on LinkedIn the other day where uh, someone, an academic was proposing to actually get rid of academic departments because it creates silos. And that really people should focus more on skills rather than academic disciplines. And the, the disciplines are really just where you apply those skills. I mean, I think it's a relatively radical shift, but not necessarily something I, I agree with. But I do agree. Yeah, there's the, millions of yeah, academics out there that will raise up and raise up their yeah, no, no, if they tried to yeah, do that. Yeah, no, change is not necessarily um, one of the areas of, <laughs> of, the, of that kind of their, their strong suit there. But the point still stands that the skills and things you do are important in history – I have found it gets at all those things, like you said, critical analysis, the ability to write and communicate your ideas. And I, I think it's the most powerful discipline because you understand people. And I, and I don't mean it in that kind of cliche, history repeats itself way. I think most of us in, who've studied history and like know that history repeats itself is a little bit simplistic. But you do understand people better. You do understand how they react to things. And actually, you really understand the complexity of human nature. And that's the one thing I emphasize is that college-level course, we're going to be looking at complex things. You know, we have the narrative of the pilgrims coming to Plymouth Rock and sitting down with the Indians at, or Native Americans. But I'm, I'm thinking back to when I was in school, and it was the, you know, still that, that kind of terminology. But sitting down with the Native Americans, having the first Thanksgiving, la-di-da, but then... <laughs> you know, 100 years later, it's it's a very different scene. But there were so many complex factors that went into that. And historians need to be able to, to suss those out. And the complexity really comes from human nature and, and human interaction. Then, okay, well, that makes a lot of sense. Before we go, do you have any th recommendations for us, a favorite history-related book or item of some sort? 
You know, there's a lot that come to mind. I think one of the most interesting and eye-opening history books that I read, it was pertinent to my field uh, of study, but I didn't necessarily use it as much. It just was so eye-opening to me. It's a book called Affairs of Honor by Joanne B. Freeman, and it's about political culture in early America. And really what it shows you is that we have this kind of notion today in our world that politics is so personal now and everything is so negative and it used to, you know, we needed to be like it was. No, it was always bad. In fact, it used to be worse because people used to get in duels of honor and kill each other. I mean, Aaron Burr and, and Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton being an example of that. But it was, it's a very interesting look to me at political culture. My area of study was theories of government and theories of democracy and the idea behind the republic and its connection to the classical world. And so those kinds of philosophical uh, debates about the, you know, the nature of how humans should govern themselves is always something that's fascinating to me. Of course, the practical application of politics, uh, politics I find so odious, but this was a great book to kind of merge it. And it's lighthearted enough to keep your spirits up, but to really show you, you know what, it was always kind of a really nasty game. And I don't really know if that's a good or bad thing, but it just is a thing and it was eye opening. So I really enjoy that book. That's really cool. James, do you have anything you'd like to recommend this week? Definitely. Well, it's something that unfortunately at this point is history. But recently there was an exhibit, and I think the two of you, knowing that you are both huge fans of music, will appreciate this. Recently at the DeYoung Museum in San Francisco, there was a 50-year retrospective on the Summer of Love from 1967. So that brief period when youth from around the country all converged on San Francisco for sex, drugs, and rock and roll in the middle of Golden Gate Park and along Haight Street. And um, the exhibit itself was a really fascinating collection of fashion rock posters, which this is the the period when they became huge. Bill Graham and uh, some of the other people that owned venues in the San Francisco area started working with local artists to create these really psychedelic and beautiful rock posters for bands like God, I mean, well, you have the Grateful Dead, obviously, because they were from the area, but um, the Who, the Kinks, I mean, everybody who was kind of touring at this time, Eric Burden and the Animals. And then there was a lot of photography and obviously historical blurbs thrown into these this exhibit as well. So I think the de Young might still have the exhibition up online or at least information about it. And they had a, a really nice hardcover book that collected all of all of the visuals so various rock posters and pictures of the art uh, or of the fashion and the photographs that were taken at the time so if either of you like that or if any of the listeners do as well if you're interested in the development of rock culture and and art and fashion especially in the 60s that was an excellent exhibition that sounds really cool very cool yeah I'm just going to talk quickly about a uh, a rival podcast. <laughs> Every time you talk to people about history podcasts, the one that everyone always talks about is Hardcore History by a guy named Dan Carlin, who's a, um, a journalist. And every top ten list of history podcasts, it's always up at the top. And I have to admit to my chagrin that I had never actually listened to an episode of that podcast until about a month ago, because it is kind of intimidating when you go look at the list of episodes, each episode, he only issues two or three episodes per year, but each episode is hours long. Uh, so they're like, uh, I just finished up one that was three hours long. There are some that are six hours long. And it's just the idea of listening to a six hour long podcast episode always seemed intimidating to me. I happen to have some commute time a couple months ago. And so I started actually started listening to it. And, you know, 
turns out that it's worth all the praise that people, that people give it. It's, uh, it's, it's quite well done. He tends to focus on the most dramatic moments of history. It's always like the rise and falls of empires. I'm in the middle of listening to a six-episode series on World War I. And so it's all about kind of the minute-by-minute, blow-by-blow of the first days of World War I at this point, which is fascinating because hmm. most lectures that you listen to or even documentaries, they just don't devote that much time to it. And so when he's got six episodes and each episode is three or four hours long, he's able to talk about a whole lot more than really anybody is able to. And so it's, it's just a fascinating blow-by-blow uh, you know, the, this part of the German army moves over here and that part moves over there, which sounds amazingly boring when, when I summarize it. But in his telling, it becomes interesting because he starts quoting from the, the generals and, and the guys on the ground and all that. He's not a historian, but he's a really good journalist. And so he's able to find, uh, you know, the human element in it also. He doesn't really focus much at all on things like social history or that kind of thing. It's much more of the kind of the grandeur of war and the, the glory and the trauma of war and all of that. So it's, it's in some ways, it's kind of a pretty traditional view of history, but it is a fascinating right. thing to listen to. And there are some episodes where it's where I feel like, you know, if I ever start giving in-person lectures again, I might just, you know, hit play on that and leave the room and just let the students listen to that because it just provides a much more interesting introduction to these topics than, than I feel like I ever could. So check it out. Most of the episodes are free, but I think he charges for some back episodes. I don't know. But just get the free ones and give it a shot when you've got like six hours to kill. <laughs> it's interesting <laughs> stuff. I'd like to thank Tom for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you. This yeah, was great. Lots much. of fun. And thank you for joining us today. If you have any questions or comments on this podcast, as always, please send me an email at snhuhistory at gmail.com. For James Fennessy and Tom Leary, I'm Rob Denning. Good day. You liked it, kid. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. I am a dedicated professional. I would never do that. All the fun hypotheticals. Go ahead and stop the recording now.